man, there is no greater challenge than being a leader. And today was one of those days where I was faced with exhaustion. I was faced with so many challenges and I was feeling defeated. And it happened to be the day that we were bringing Brian Myers on the podcast. Being Jet Set Farron is kind of exhausting. And like right now, being a leader actually feels exhausting. Yeah, it is. It doesn't feel it, it is. Yeah. I mean, sometimes even like the words that we use can can really morph our perspective. And like, sometimes I say exactly what you just said, which is like, oh, this feels exhausting. I'm like, no, like it actually is exhausting. And it's okay for me to like feel that and be that because yes, I'm a leader and I'm a CEO of a company, but I'm also still human. (laughs) And exhaustion is a natural human state when you've been running the way that we all have, especially after the last 14 or 15 months that we've had. So feel it, be it. (laughs) Live it. You know, Fahrenheit had a really interesting trajectory during COVID. I think at first, like everyone, we were really afraid. And then I think we focused in on our mission to support our founders and our brands and actually found ourselves doubling in growth. And I think all of us were so grateful to wake up every morning and not just have a job, but have a real purpose of how do we serve our founders and then how do we serve their communities and their audiences and their customers who are all globally and universally going through the exact same thing. But with that level of gratitude and commitment, I think came a speed and a pace that I didn't realize until recently we were not going to be able to continue. And I'm in the throes of it right now as a leader of thinking about how do we transition from what worked during the COVID year to how do we now operate in an environment in a world that is remote for the most part, at least for us, and where people have lives again, for lack of a better word. And honestly, this is totally me projecting my own, really my own stuff, I think, onto the conversation of, I have dinner plans now, you know, Um, (laughs) like I have dinner plans and like, I want to go out on the weekend and I'm not available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And so I think, yeah, we're in this really interesting moment of trying to think about what does the new world look like? And as a leader, how do you actually lead through that? It's so funny that you say that because right before this conversation, my previous meeting was actually my bi-monthly one-on-one with my founder. We were talking about this very topic of like, what, how do we transition ourselves culturally to normality? It's this weird tension because you've like wound this thing up called COVID living for 14 months. And it was a traumatic 14 months. Even if you were in a thriving business, it was still just like things constantly changing, not knowing what was coming, fear for your health, all of that. And then now it's like leaders, elected leaders and public health officials kind of snap their fingers and they're like, okay, things are semi-normal now. And like, we are instantly as humans thinking that we are going to be able to pop back to normality, but it, it, it really is a transition. And I'm feeling some of those same tensions where, you know, I get home from work or if it's a day that I'm working from home, I like take that break for dinner and post dinner. I'm like, oh man, I kind of just want to be like a human and watch TV and like spend time with my husband and my dog or go outside in our backyard. And I was in such a crisis mode of operating that like literally every waking moment I was spent working or thinking about work and just knowing that that's not a sustainable place to be for me or frankly, of course, my team. And of course, the way that I behave signals to my team how they they should behave. And so trying to be really cognizant of that coming out of this is is so important as a leader. So I, I hear you and understand the struggle. I resonate so much with everything you said in the weirdest of ways. And I say this with like so much humility, overworking during COVID became kind of fun. Because it was the only thing you had to do. It was the only thing you had to do. And I think that we really felt like we were on this mission together. And I remember taking literally there was moments, a few members of our team moved back to Australia during COVID. So we were operating on a crazy clock. And I remember taking almost every night, like a call at 11 or 12 p.m. from the bathtub. Like literally would get on the phone with my graphic designer from a tub. And I remember like in a weird way, you kind of idolize certain moments of time. And I think that working in an abnormal way during COVID became fun because it became an outlet and it became like 
our vacation from what was actually going on. Whereas now I think we're ready to vacation from the pace and the, and the speed that was work during those times. And so as a leader, one of the things I always think about is like, how do I set a good example? And, you know, truthfully in a moment, and this is just a moment of real transparency, I don't think I always do because I think it's my natural inclination to kind of lean into getting in the weeds, overworking, not taking those breaks. And for the first time, I'm feeling the same way you are, taking a break for dinner, thinking I'm going to go back to work after, but then just actually not having it in me and recognizing that's okay too, you know? Totally. Hustle culture is a drug. Yeah. You like get into it and you're, you feed off the energy of like always hustling and like wanting to be in the thick of things and like, what's the next curveball that's going to come? Like, I'm ready to take it on. And then you realize like every drug, like you are on the high and then there's a crash on the other side yeah. that doesn't feel good. And I say this as if like, I literally have never done any drugs in my yeah. life. Um, <laughs> confession for your podcast. So I like, I say this as if I know anything about drugs. It's funny. Whenever I talk we'll about drugs, I like do this. Yeah, we'll put a PSA. Yeah. It's like a hit of drugs. And people are like, are you taking your pulse? Like, are you doing that on your wrist? I'm like, I don't know. This is like me at Fahrenheit. Every single leadership coaching session that I give to the team where like most of them are multitasking and not even listening and I'm like amped up <laughs> is like a sports metaphor. Do not know anything about mm. sports. I like mix positions from soccer with football, like never get it right. I do that with sports metaphors too because the gay in me just like doesn't do sports. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's like it's really a drug and it's funny because thinking about like our history together, I was reflecting just the other week about my time at Sweetgreen and when Sweetgreen relocated its headquarters to LA and I like had an apartment in LA and I also had an apartment in DC and I was going back and forth and I was like, I cannot believe I used to fly every other week between DC and LA uh -huh. and I would get on a red eye in coach and then like <laughs> live my weekend life with my, you know, my then fiance. Like, I was just like, what was I thinking? But I was addicted to the hustle culture. Something that you just triggered for me is that there's actually a very thin line between the addiction to the hustle culture and a dedication to your work. And that mm -hmm. finding the balance between really knowing when you're operating from a place of passion and dedication and accountability versus when you're operating from a place of addiction, quite frankly, which is a very interesting thing that probably we, we could unpack. Obviously, you and I had the great pleasure of working together for many years at Sweetgreen and Brian and I were co-VPs. And I think one of the most beautiful, marvelous things about Sweetgreen was the level of talent at the senior executive leadership level in our time there. I feel so honored to have been able to work on a team. There was seven or eight of us at the vice president level who were really marching towards building this brand. And I always looked at Brian, you as such a leader and someone I really admired and respected. Now you're in the position as CEO of SolidCore. Could not be more proud and excited for you. And I think when I was really thinking about what to talk about today, this conversation of leadership is what came up for me. What does it mean to you to be a leader? One, thank you for those kind words, Sharon. But like, I, I agree with you that like that moment in time that we were there and obviously can't speak for what it is now, it still may be amazing, but I don't even think I really appreciated it in the moment of just like how special that team was and like how we gelled and problem solved and got in each other's business in a good way. And like, yeah, it was just really such an amazing time. And I always respected you and your creative vision, which is like, I will say upfront for all the Fahrenheit <laughs> listeners, I am not a creative. I am not a marketer. I'm like, I don't know what she's talking about, but that sounds like it's going to cost a lot of money. Always, and always. I was in finance. So I was like, I don't know about that. No, but I, I always appreciated that push. And like, now we're in the process at SolidCore of hiring a CMO and like, I'm looking for that. And I think a lot about, and when I'm talking to candidates right now through the interview process, I hearken back a lot to SweetGreen and like what you really helped build as our marketing leader there. So big shout out to you. Thank you, Brian. But I'll answer your question very simply, which is to me, in order to be a leader and what leadership really means is service. It means doing what it takes to serve your organization and provide it with what it needs. And so leadership is going to show up differently in different moments in time because there are moments like a global pandemic hitting and you have to lay off 98% of your staff and what your organization really needs is someone who's going to be steady, but empathetic 
to the situation that's going on. There are going to be other moments where you're coming out of COVID and you're kind of trying to reinvent the culture where what the organization really needs is someone to be like really inspirational and hard charging. But at the end of the day, I view my role as the CEO to be a servant leader to the folks who are around me and who work for this organization. And frankly, even the community of people who call this place their home away from home when they're working out. So I really view my duty as giving the organization what it ultimately needs to be successful. How do you balance the priorities? So you are in service of others. What are the frameworks or ways that you pick what is important and where you ultimately give that service and time? I really wish I had an amazing answer to this question. And I really wish I had it down to a science (laughs) because it's a struggle every day. There are so many things that are competing for your time. And I think the big thing that I use as a leader is I use data. And I think when you're running an organization, particularly an organization of, of scale, right? So SolidCore operates 71 locations across 19 states in the District of Columbia. And it's easy to get distracted by an anecdote, whether it's an anecdote that you hear from someone, Mm -hmm. a client writing in with a complaint or a compliment, your one-off experience when I go to a studio and I take class, it's really easy to get distracted and start to like give your time to, oh my gosh, I went into this one single studio and oh my gosh, I saw this amazing thing and I want to replicate it. Or I saw this one amazing thing, or sorry, not amazing thing and I, I need to fix it. But if you do that at every single turn, you'll never zoom out to see the data of the bigger picture and understand what matters actually the most for the mission and what we're trying to accomplish. So even to use the painting example, and I'm using it because it's top of mind, we're sort of going through a bit of a refresh of our, of our studios right now. But when I walk into it and I'm like, oh gosh, I really wish we would replace the chair at the front desk here because it just looks old and worn. I'm like, Brian, but if we did that, every single place that you went, we would never zoom out and look at the bigger picture to go like, okay, what are the most important client touch points across all of our studios? How do we prioritize which studio needs love the most? Because like you might be seeing this and like this doesn't look amazing to you, but it may look frankly better than something that you're not seeing. And so what I try to do from a decision-making standpoint is to leverage data and where data doesn't actually exist to create it, right? So like, again, to this example of the physical state of our studios, right? Like we went out, we had all of our people in the field take photographs of all of the major areas of the studio. We took it, compiled it, put it all in a spreadsheet and rated it on a scale of one to five. That was creating data where there was no data because I was like, we have 71 studios. Like, how are we going to figure out where we even start? What's most important? But you had to create, for me, the way that I think, I had to create data where there was no data in order to help lead the team effectively. So that's the framework that I use. But like I said, if I if I had it down, I probably would write a book or something. Totally. <laughs> one day, you probably will. I hope you do. One day, one day. What's so interesting about it is there's also this question in there of like, as a leader, what do you lead versus what do you direct versus what do you do? And one of the things that I've actually found, and this brings me back to one of my first Karen Kelly leadership lessons. And for context, Karen Kelly was the president of Sweetgreen during the time that Brian and I were there. (laughs) And I got hired as a VP of marketing. And in one of the first few months of being there, I was struggling. And Karen called me in her office and she said, Farron, if you want to be a director, I'll give you that job. But if you want to be a VP, go do that job. She did not say it that kindly. I just want to put that out there. Which, by the way, that what you just said was actually not all that kind. No, no, Um, it wasn't kind. And that was kind. But it really is something that I have continued to think about and repeat. And actually, when I look at my team, I'm often thinking to myself, in both good and bad, this person currently is operating like a director and they might be a manager. And that's like an incredible moment to recognize. Or right now, this person who's a VP is operating like a director. And how do I help them to understand what their actual job and role is? There is a moving spectrum between when you actually sit down and do the work versus when as a leader, you actually should not do the work. Because Mm -hmm. by doing the work, you are doing someone else's job and you're not letting them become accountable to it. Inherent in that question is this challenge of when do you get in the weeds with your team and coach and teach and do it versus when do you have to take a step back and say, no, I got to let them do it even if I could do it faster or better or different. Yeah, it's such a tough dance. And I will tell you, Farron, in all transparency, coming out of COVID, it has been even tougher as a leader 
because that 98% number that I threw out there was not a joke, right? Like when COVID hit, we laid off 98% of our people and there were 12 or 13 of us who stuck around to help this company survive through the pandemic. And so because of that, I kind of immediately went back into work mode, right? Like I was the analyst sitting behind the spreadsheet. I was the person calling a vendor and everything in between. Also the person like making the decisions and like, again, the entire spectrum. And so coming out of COVID, it's been really, really hard to back off of that. But my general philosophy is, and again, you know, people have different leadership philosophies and, but this is what seems to work for me. I default to letting the team do it. And only if I sense a struggle or I'm managing an underperformer, do I feel like I need to jump in and start to take on the actual work? Mm. And it's so, so hard. I say it like it's so easy, but I will tell you it's so, so hard because there are moments where you're like, it would be so much faster for me to just do this. Yeah, It would be so much easier to not have to go out and have this conversation and explain what I'm looking for, get it back inevitably something that's not quite what I was looking for, and then explain it again, right? It's so easy to fall into those traps. But it's so important to your point, because at the end of the day, that person owns the work, has the accountability and learns and grows from it. But also because you as a leader are better served doing something else that you are uniquely capable of doing. Totally. And that is kind of the pep talk I have to give myself legitimately constantly. I will tell you like a real world, real time example from even earlier today, we just hired a new admin support for me with scheduling. And again, for the last year, I've been scheduling my own meetings, doing my own travel. And like, I will tell you, I like die every time I have to copy her in on an email. I'm like, can you take care of scheduling this for me? Because I'm just like, it would be so much faster for me to just be like, I can do 9 a.m. tomorrow. Does that work for you? But then I realize like, no, but what if they come back and say no? And then like, I have to give them a different time and it's the back and forth. And like, my time is better served doing something else in service of the organization than scheduling this meeting, right? Like the meeting is the service that I'm uniquely positioned to do. The scheduling of the meeting is actually not something I'm uniquely positioned to do. But yeah, it's not easy. What you just said really reminded me of a conversation we had earlier this week. On Mondays at Fahrenheit, we set the tone, which is really sort of this moment in time where we talk openly as a team about goals, ambitions, emotional territories, ideas that are sort of ruminating under the surface of the actual technical work we do. This started two weeks ago, and we had a follow-up this week on this idea of a higher power and a North Star, which is something that you and I are very familiar in creating for brands. I think, you know, Brian, you and I spent a year writing a mission statement for Sweetgreen, but I wanted to do it for myself, actually. And it was very hard. I gave the homework to my team to do it. And then I found that the exercise was very challenging for me. And what I realized through all of it was actually, I think my North Star is or my higher calling is really about teaching. And I realized that the podcast is actually a complete direct output of that, which was I was feeling like I wanted a vehicle or a platform or an outlet to actually just teach. And part of why I think I love being a leader is actually just the ability to teach. But I find that my schedule keeps me and holds me back from teaching because if I'm doing the wrong things, if I'm in the weeds, if I'm doing someone else's work, the first thing that goes is the moments and the opportunity where I can actually be teaching. And for me, that is what I would say my service of the organization or of my founders is. How do I help to teach both how to be a leader, how to market, how to build your brand, how to tell your story? Like these are the things that I actually think make me love my job the most, but it's really easy to get mired in like the day-to-day chaos of being at an early stage startup and solid core is. Tell us a little bit about Solid Core and the history of the brand and what you guys are up to and why ultimately you decided to take the role as CEO. Solid Core, we operate a chain of boutique fitness studios. It's a Pilates inspired workout that we do on a custom reformer that we call Sweat Lana. And so think doing, <laughs> don't laugh, I love Aaron. it. I love um, it. We love a little personification, I love right? It. But yeah, think about doing a full body workout using resistance as sort of the mechanism and everything is done super slow designed to get into your slow twitch muscle fibers. And the whole goal 
is to get your body and each individual muscle group that you work in the workout to failure. So that point where your muscles are literally shaking and you're like, WTF is happening to me. We're like, yes, that's exactly what we wanted out of this class. So we were founded seven and a half years ago in Washington, D.C. We were founded by a woman named Ann Malam, who this was actually her second entrepreneurial venture. Her first was an organization. It was a nonprofit called Back on My Feet, which actually still exists and operates um, chapters around the country. And that organization was really designed to help homeless people, both literally and figuratively, get back on their feet using the power of running communities. These homeless individuals who are living in shelters would wake up multiple times a week at 5 a.m., go on runs, and then they would also get life skills training, job training, and then ultimately get them to a place where they could live in their own space. So a really incredible organization. And she ran that for several years. And through some personal struggles that she had, frankly, with body image and disordered eating, she speaks about this very publicly, so I know she wouldn't mind me saying it for people who are like, damn, he's selling all her business. <laughs> um, she found this resistance-based style of workout on a trip to L.A., and it really spoke to many of the challenges that she felt like she was having, particularly as a woman, with trying to tone her body in a certain way, muscles that she hadn't worked through running multiple marathons and doing all of the workouts under the sun. And she was like, I need to bring this to as many communities as possible. So I tell you that story just to say at the heart of who we are has been this mission to bring this style of workout to as many communities as possible. And so growth has always been a part of who we are. Within the first 13 or 14 months, she had five studios open and we've been growing ever since. And so pre-pandemic, we were the country's fastest growing company-owned boutique fitness concept. And we are super excited about getting back to that post-pandemic. You talked about growth. And I think, interestingly, as a leader, one of the things you've historically been responsible for or play a huge role in is growth. And now as the CEO of SolidCore, that is arguably one of your main goals. What are the fundamentals of growth? Like for someone who's in this unique position and trying to figure out how to develop and grow their business, what are the fundamentals of growth that you could honestly apply to either your personal or your professional side? Yeah, so I, I was hired as COO and I was really hired because I oversaw at the end of my tenure at Sweet Green, our new store growth function. So real estate design construction and was sitting at 25-ish studios and was like, hey, I want to get to 100, 150. Like I need someone who has the expertise to do it. Although I'm like now operating in a different part of the health and wellness space, the fundamentals that I bring to the table are really two things. And as you said, Farron, they are applicable whether you're talking about building brick and mortar retail units or thinking about how you grow as a person and it's process and it's people. For us, as we think about process, you have to find what markets you want to go to, find what trade areas within that market, negotiate the lease, all of those things that are sort of a part of the process. And if any one of those parts of the process breaks down, the entire process grinds to a halt. And I will tell you, we are very, very good at process at SolidCore. And I learned some things from our time at SweetGrade that have made us better at managing that process and making sure sort of the trains are leaving the station on time. But then you can get to the end of it and have a studio built. But if you don't have the people pipeline to successfully run and operate those studios, then you've really spent money for nothing. And so it's important that you have both of those sides of the equation because like to get there, you have to have the process, but then to run it, to make money and get your investment back, you have to have the people. And I will say that's very similar in your personal life. Personal growth doesn't come without thoughtfulness. And thoughtfulness is really my code word for process. Mm -hmm. You have to think about where is it that I ultimately want to go in my personal life? What type of person do I want to be? And if you don't go through that thought process and then figure out how do I lay the stepping stones in a way that are going to get me there, then you're never going to get there. So you have to have that process. But then you have to think about the people around you who are going to support you we're going to hold you accountable because to grow personally and ultimately get to where you want to be, it's aspirational. And anytime you're doing something that's aspirational, there's going to be roadblocks. There's going to be challenges. There are going to be days when you want to quit, days when you want to give up, days when you think you're not good enough. And like, if you don't have people 
in your corner saying, Farron, you said you want to be there. You're not doing the right things. Or you need to change your headspace. Or Brian, like, shake it off. Yes, you hit a stumbling block, but you're going to get there eventually. Keep working. If you don't have those people to keep you in check and hold you accountable, you also won't get there. It takes a village. No one gets anywhere on their own. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that personal growth is really a critical piece of being a leader. I don't think, at least in my experience, that you can be a successful leader if you are not dedicated to growing and changing because your organization will grow and change and you have to grow with it. And I think you have a level of responsibility to the teams that dedicate their time and their lives to you to, I'm going to say this and it's very general, to trying your best. I don't think it's about being right all the time, winning all the time, or necessarily like getting to this metaphorical mountaintop all the time. But I think it's about the effort and the attempt and the focus and to your point, the thoughtfulness, which is I want to be a leader that my team is proud to support, to work for, for lack of a better term. I might fall on my face a million times, but hopefully I do it in a way that makes them proud. Totally. And at the end of the day, Farron, to that point, like if you are not falling on your face, if you're not stepping in it every once in a while, then your aspirations aren't big enough. There's an aspiration that I'm going to talk to my team about here in the coming days. So I won't reveal it on the podcast, but it's a big, it's a big, hairy, audacious goal, right? We, love B-hag. A B-hag, we, talked, yeah. a lot, yeah, we <laughs> talked a lot about the hags on sweet cream, right? There's, it's a big goal for us. There's a chance that I throw it out there and like, we don't get there. But that is part of being a leader. That's a part of growth. That's a part of courage. That's a part of change. It's evolution. And to your point, like if you're going to be a leader, one of two things are going to happen. Either you are going to evolve so that your organization is evolving and you're getting somewhere, there's forward motion, or you're going to stay stagnant and you're going to force your organization to stay stagnant. But at the end of the day, humans like to be in forward motion. So then your organization culturally is just going to slowly erode because people don't want to be a part of an organization that's like, we're just treading water and we're totally content treading water. The human spirit likes to move. It's grow or die, right? <laughs> like, Do you ever feel stagnant? Sometimes you have to take a step back in order to take a step forward. And sometimes you have to sit in an even playing field, if you will, to be able to figure out what comes next. So what do you do when you feel stagnant? Because as a CEO, you don't have that much wiggle room to stay there. So what are some of the tools or ways that you think about getting out of those moments where you feel stuck? Yeah, I think we're in one right now. And I think it's funny. I think if anyone who is a part of our team was listening to this podcast, they'd be like, wait, what? You feel like we're (laughs) stagnant? Like everything around us is changing. But I will (laughs) say fundamentally, our company is more or less the same company that we were going into the pandemic. And so that is why, frankly, I've been doing this thinking around like, we need a shift. We need a meaningful shift in how we're approaching problems, how we're thinking about the ultimate goal of where we want to be to shake us loose of the old ways of thinking. And one of the things that, again, we were talking, me and my founder earlier today, that we're like, we need people to start thinking more outside of the box. And I'm like, That comes from me as a leader. It comes from us as leaders. If people aren't thinking outside of the box, it's not going to be good enough to just say, think outside the box, right? Like there's a reason that they're not because people like to bring new ideas to the table. And for me, what I ultimately came to the realization of is like, people aren't thinking outside of the box because like our BHAG has been growth. Growth is just repeating this for us from like a unit perspective. It's like repeating the same process and getting better at it. But like, there's nothing fundamentally transformational about it. So like, how do I put a BHAG out there that's going to make people have to think transformationally? Because if they don't think transformationally, there's no way we'll get there. Could not resonate with that more. You're putting the onus and the accountability of not just what people are doing, but how they're doing it on yourself as a leader first and saying, how do I operate from a place where I'm changing the language, I'm changing the mechanics or the rhetoric of like how we are internally thinking in order for my team to then grow And I think once you give them that platform, then it's up to them. And then they've got to show up and they've got to do their part and play their role. But it always starts with you. I think that there is such a blessing and also a curse in that thinking. Where does it end? Where does the (laughs) onus on you end? And it's funny, I think I've gotten to a place where I really blame myself, quite frankly, for everything. I have this saying at Fahrenheit where like, you don't get in trouble. 
It's not about getting in trouble. We just got to know. I got to know what happened. I got to know what's going on because most of the time I'm really reflecting on myself of where did I mess up and finding that sweet spot between like, okay, where is it my fault? But also like, I don't need to be a martyr. Where did someone actually just not hold their end of the bargain? And where did they not do the right thing? But inherently in our values, and this is actually a great question for you, which is like, how do you get people in this new role that you're in to really live those values? So like you're establishing this BHAG, you want to change the way people think. You want people to start thinking outside of the box. Like first step is setting the right example and putting it out there. But then how do you build that muscle of people thinking that way, where in two years from now, it's just the way solid core is? Yeah, I think one of the things that you got to do is you got to talk about it. It would be a failure for me to put this BHAG out there and be like, by 2025, we want to be X. And then like, we don't talk about it until 2025. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like that would be a failure. But the second thing is you got to reward. And it's so funny. My husband, just this morning, we were talking about like what book I want to read next. The book he recommended to me that I'm going to read alongside my founder is called Encouraging the Heart, which is this book all about like praise and recognition as a way to motivate people. Mm. And I'm super excited to dig into it more, but I fundamentally believe in that philosophy that like what gets measured slash what gets celebrated is what gets done. And so as we're talking about this shift of thinking big, thinking outside of the box, I know it's incumbent upon me as a leader to make sure that when I see examples of people doing that, mm. when someone's tried it, and even if they fall on their face, but they thought big, I have to celebrate it. And it's not enough for me to celebrate it privately. I have to also publicly celebrate it so that it becomes ingrained in the culture that this is what it means to work here. This is what it means to be a team player. It means pushing the envelope. It means sometimes not all, not all the time, because you can't fail all the time, because that's not okay. Mm -hmm. But it means sometimes you're going to push the envelope and you're going to fail and that's okay. So to me, that's one of the things that I know for sure I'm going to have to do with this is keep talking about it and make sure I celebrate people who are really striving to get there in a tangible way so that others around them know that like, okay, that's what I should be doing. That's the kind of risk I should be taking. We have this value called raise a hand. And I recognize that not everyone truly understands it. And that actually it's quite hard to really live. And I think I had been approaching it from this place of repetition. I repeat the values all day, every day, but I fundamentally believe for me, my values are the critical non-negotiable building blocks of what makes your company your company and what will allow you to unlock the potential to live your BHAG. I have no interest in working with or being at a company that does not have values that are aligned with mine. I feel very lucky and grateful to be in a position to actually do that because I get to make them, which is the fun part of Fahrenheit, you know? Um, <laughs> but really what it comes down to is when you see something, having the courage to say something. It means having the hard conversation when you know we could do better, when you know when someone's dropping the ball or when realistically we're just not doing it right. What I recognized in that is that historically in organizations and companies, people call that when it relates to each other, throwing someone under the bus or tattletaling. <laughs> yep. And what I realized is that when I was at Sweetgreen, I think I had such a level of respect and friendship with my co-VPs, that it never felt like one of us was throwing each other under the bus. It never felt like it came from a negative place or that it was a disservice. It always felt like it was in service of accomplishing our goals. But that's a really hard skill. And recently we had a project where like just everything hit the fan. Timelines were off. The creative was off. It was just something did not click. And what I realized was my team was afraid to raise a hand because they were afraid to come to me and tell me about what was actually going on because they thought that they were going to be tattletaling on each other. When I was like, guys, if you had just told me this, I could have solved this in one hour. If we have a level of trust with one another and support, even one step further of like, if we show love and care and respect to each other, none of that matters because it's all about doing what's right for the client, for the project, for each other. So I think I've actually had a, a very interesting realization over the last few weeks that like values, while I've always known they were a muscle, actually getting everyone to understand what they really mean and what that means in action is super hard. Yeah, it really is. And, and to your point, it's, I love that value of, of raising a hand because that particular skill in and of itself is also something that we're struggling with because it is so challenging. I think one in general, we as humans 
shy away from uncomfortable situations. And most of the time raising that hand and confronting or challenging a peer or a leader is like, oh my gosh, it's going to be awkward. It's going to be uncomfortable. And it's like, yeah, yeah, that's your job. <laughs> yeah. Part of your job is to experience awkwardness. Part of your <laughs> yeah. job is to experience discomfort. This is not a kindergarten classroom. And I, I don't say that in a pejorative way, but like, it's real. Yeah. Like that's what leadership is. And I expect everyone on this team to be a leader. Totally. And yeah, to raise your hand and, and say something, see something, say something. And it feels so silly. Um, and we're like, oh yeah, like I, I would. And it's like, but you didn't, you didn't. And the irony is what is the outcome if you don't? The work product suffers, someone fails. There was a girl on our team who was struggling a bit with the work. And another member of our team was recognizing that and didn't want to raise a hand. And when I actually spoke to her about it, I said, what is more in service of our employee, of our teammate? Not raising a hand or raising a hand that you know she's struggling and you think she needs help. And we can not only help her, but we can actually teach her skills that in the end are going to make her better, faster and stronger. So which one actually is the lesser of evils? And I think that that's become a real mechanic for me in leadership that I recognize one of my old leaders, John Idol at, at Michael Kors once looked at me and said, not everybody cares as much as you. And I remember being like, wow, that is a tough pill for me to swallow because, you know, you've worked with me, Brian, and you know, I'm passionate and I, I'm opinionated even when I'm learning. And so I realized like so much of raising a hand is actually caring enough to, it's caring enough to take a pause and yeah. be like, crap, I have to have an uncomfortable conversation or I got to raise a hand that this work is just not good enough. Or I have to raise a hand that like, I didn't like the way that this person spoke to someone, whatever that might be. But if you have this North Star, you have your BHAGs, you have your goals, everything should be. And I think it comes so full circle to what you said. Leadership is about being in service. How do you get those who are younger in their careers to operate as leaders and to understand what it means to lead at every level? Ooh, Farron, coming in with the tough questions. Lord have mercy. Um, oh, if I had unlocked this, I don't even know if this I'd is, be on this This is basically like what every meeting Brian and I have ever had was like, you know? Yeah, I'm like, I don't know if Farron can afford me because I have all this good advice. No, honestly, it's so challenging. It's so challenging because we grow, especially the type of individual that we hire, and I'm sure the type of individual that you hire, right? Like you go through life being praised for being almost perfect. And all of a sudden, I need you to come in this environment and like raise your hand and say like, I don't know how to do that. Or challenge someone else who you also know, like they also went to a great school and probably got straight A's. And like, am I really going to challenge this person? It's really, really difficult. However, I think two things. One is a little bit cheesy, but I do oftentimes equate this sort of leadership lesson to what we experience either as clients or for our team members who coach to what we are telling our clients to do in the studio. So like they are going through this experience that's challenging, that you know is challenging because you've been there. They want to quit. But at the end of the day, the reason that it's hard is because there's progress on the other side. And there's something that they're going to get out of it that's going to push them to be stronger even as they stay in the struggle. Sometimes using those metaphors for people are like, oh, yeah, like, okay, that does make sense. So I definitely do that on occasion. But then the other thing is just like, again, through demonstration and celebration and showing like, this is what happens when we don't make a call, when we don't, to use your language, raise our hand. And we can all agree, like, this is not what we're looking for, right? So we got to do something different. We were actually just on the phone with a team member the other day. And they were, you know, lamenting about how the last 30 days have gone and like prioritization's not been there and this, that, and the other. And it feels like chaos. And I'm like, you haven't said anything. You let 30 days go by, 30 days of lack of progress, 30 days of frustration building on your part, 30 days of not getting closer to our goals for what? Mm -hmm. Because you didn't want to offend someone, mm -hmm. right? It's just, it's just not worth it. And when you put it into those, when you sort of flip the script and like illuminate, to your point, the cost of not, then it helps people wrap their minds around like, okay, this is going to be uncomfortable. I'm going to have to be courageous in order to do that. But this is how we create an organization that is bigger, faster, stronger together. 
What's so interesting is I think people assume that growth in your career is often tied to the work product. And of Mm -hmm. course it is. That is a variable. But like when I think about someone that would grow at Fahrenheit or quite frankly on any team I've ever been on, it's way more what you just said. It's way more the person that comes to me and says, hey, this isn't working. It's inefficient. Can I take a stab at fixing it? Hey, there's some weird energy happening between these two groups. Like, can you come and talk and so we can resolve it? It's the person that cares. And I think with the care comes the need, the need, like the, 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 I can't sleep at night need to address things, you know? When you're fairly junior, you're like 90% of the job is your work product. 10% is kind of like leadership. The more senior you get, it completely flips. My CFO, I'm like, I don't care if you can get in and crunch a spreadsheet. We can hire someone who can crunch a spreadsheet. I need you to be able to think. I need you to be able to lead. I need you to be able to challenge. I need you to be able to push. Like, that's what I'm paying you for. Preach, Brian. Preach. And you know what? (laughs) Something you said just really struck me because I think one of the personal lessons I learned from my time at Sweetgreen was I felt like I had to know the answer to everything. And there are definitely a lot of things that I didn't know the answer to that you did or that were in your world. Because I think back to when I first joined, I had never worked in the restaurant business before. I had never worked at that level. It was being a VP. I was a first-time VP, just like you're the first-time CEO. And I wish looking back, if I could change everything, that I had been more confident to be vulnerable and raise a hand on what I had no freaking clue how to do. And I think at Fahrenheit, I've really tried to create an environment where people can can say, I don't know how to do that. And I'm like, all right, let's teach, right? It comes back to my, if you will, maybe it's sort of just like personally what I love to do, which is teach. So I hope to create an environment where people feel like they can learn. But part of being a leader is really being able to say, I don't know how to do something and I'm either going to learn it, I'm going to figure it out, or I'm going to hire the right people who are those subject matter experts where I can coach them and educate them and challenge them and lead them effectively, but allow them to add value to the organization that ultimately I can't and quite frankly shouldn't because it's not a good use of my time. That vulnerability is so hard. I mean, I still struggle with when I don't know the answer to something, I'm like, I need to figure it out. I need to figure it out before I ask for help. And it's like, no. I try to reinforce it with myself by oftentimes talking about the things that I'm not good at, right? Like I led this call being like, I am not a marketer. I know nothing about brand. (laughs) I shouldn't say I know nothing, but like, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. You know a few things. I know a couple things. I know enough to be dangerous, but it's like, but I, I do that frankly for my own reinforcement of like, it's okay to say that you don't know things, but then I also do it for my team around me so that they know, wait, you don't need to know everything. And if I ask you a question, yeah, there are going to be certain things that are in your domain of expertise that I do expect you to have the answer to. But like, if it's like on the fringe of your domain expertise, or if the question is like hyper-specific, like what was our revenue on Tuesday at this studio in this month? I'm not expecting you to know the answer off the top of your head. Like, it's okay to be like, yeah, I need to look that up. And so I try to incorporate and enforce that culture in our own company because it's so important. And like, That is where the magic happens. When people can admit, I don't know that. I need help there. I would much rather have that than someone just faking it. (laughs) Completely. (laughs) Going back to the, what we talked about in the beginning of this conversation, faking it is exhausting. And it's not a good use of your time, your energy. And in the end, it leads to everything from burnout to just unhappiness. And I think, especially coming out of COVID, I hope that more leaders than just us are trying to create environments where people can feel seen and heard and rally together to accomplish great goals and and mission-driven companies. So it goes back to what you said about being thoughtful, which is in order to lead, you have to think and you have to critically think. And it's thinking about what you want to accomplish, but also how you want to accomplish it. And I think that's where culture is created. Absolutely. Can we touch on like one little like mini topic because you said a word that's been like triggering for me recently is this notion of burnout. And I hear it a lot and I've been reflecting on it a lot. And I spent some time with my team talking about it because I think there are two things for people to recognize. There's a difference between an unsustainable job and being burnt out. And I think sometimes people equate the two. And I think it's really important for young leaders, especially to step back and go, is the job unsustainable or am I just burnt out? 
the job is unsustainable, you should absolutely start with, okay, what are the elements that are going to make the job more sustainable? But if you're like, actually, the job on its face actually isn't unsustainable, but I'm still feeling burnt out, then the question that I challenge my team to ask themselves is, what are the boundaries that I've set that are being consistently eroded? And what I have personally found is when I ask myself that question, I haven't actually set any boundaries. Mm. And the burnout that I'm experiencing, the boundaries that I feel like are eroding are either boundaries that I haven't set, boundaries that I've set but haven't verbalized, or boundaries I've set, verbalized, and I've allowed to be overrun. Completely. And usually coming from that place, I can walk out of that mental space of being burnt out and change that feeling, that state that I'm in without even touching or speaking to anyone else. It's like just that. It's like, okay, wait, I've actually set boundaries. And I said, every Tuesday evening, I want to make sure I have dinner with my husband. But for the last five Tuesdays, someone's requested a meeting with me at 7 p.m. on a Tuesday. And I've said, yes. Mm-hmm. Whose fault is that? They don't know that, that Brian has dinner with his husband. It's not like I'm like, oh, I actually have dinner with my husband. And they're like, oh, you know what? Cancel it. Like very rarely does that happen. So anyway, this is like my big soapbox moment on burnout right now. It's so important. First of all, on the topic of raising a hand, one of the proudest moments that we did publicly reward was when an employee of mine raised a hand and said, listen, I think we're all experiencing burnout. At Fahrenheit, we talk about things. We keep it real. We are human. Let's talk about it. And I said, let's do it on a Zoom as a group meeting. And so we actually had this incredible discussion around burnout, which we put on the Fahrenheit podcast. We ended up just sharing the full team meeting. And I resonate with what you just said, because I recognize through my own journey of both being a leader and just being a woman in my 30s that I have no boundaries. I am completely boundaryless. I literally should have t-shirts made and I've never had them. Who knew? I took me a long time to figure it out, but I don't. And I always, for many, many years, I believed in and I leaned into the rhetoric of burnout. And in fact, I think I championed a lot of it. Sleepless nights, overworking. And you know, listen, Brian, you worked with me. I might not be the best, but I am a grinder. No one will ever debate. I will stay up all night. I will work all morning. I will work all weekend. And by the way, I'm 36. I've been doing this for 15 years. I'm almost 36. I'm not there yet. I've been doing this for 15 years. And I honestly am working exactly the way that I worked when I was 21 years old. Nothing has changed. So whose fault is that? Because I can tell you, I've had many a leader, many a job during that time. And the one consistent variable is me. What is interesting is I feel a level of responsibility with Fahrenheit to set a better example. But setting a better example is directly in competition with these like inherent boundaryless behaviors (laughs) that I am working on. And I will say one boundary I did create this year, which like your Tuesday night is my Wednesday night. I have therapy, which I'm a big believer in. And I have a mindfulness coach. And even sometimes I do a business coach. And Wednesday is like the one night I will not negotiate. And one, a way to do that is have accountability. If I don't show up, I have to pay all of them. And so that's a good way to motivate. (laughs) It's a good way to motivate me to not cancel. But even over the last year during COVID, I lived in Mexico. The one thing I would not get rid of is my Wednesday night. And so I think Creating those boundaries, which is where that burnout conversation, I think, really begins. Picking one thing I found really helpful for me. And I do think for me, to your advice, I'll give you mine back, which is one, change the rhetoric. When I hear people are tired, burnt out, overwhelmed, overworked, I call them and I'm like, let's nip this in the bud. Let's not talk about it. Let's fix it. And I don't want to be an organization where people are calling each other and they're like kind of rewarding each other for that. Now, There is a reality of working at a fast-paced, high-growth startup. There is a reality of being dedicated to your job. There's a reality of the work and that it's going to happen. But how do we mitigate those moments through our own choices? And then also as leaders, there's our responsibility, which is to make sure that our teams have what they need and that they're set up for success. But I used to blame the companies I worked for for burnout. And certainly in moments or to some extent there was. And I think now it's really on me. It's on me to create those boundaries. Last week, I took four hours off in the middle of the day to go like swimming in the ocean. And I got back and I texted my VP, Danny, and I said, I don't need a full day or week off. Like, I just needed those four hours. 
Who knew that something so simple would actually just like give me all the fuel that I needed to like be like, all right, I'm ready to go back into work. Well, I'm the opposite. I'm like, I am (laughs) going on vacation. (laughs) My husband and I, we have not taken like a proper vacation since 2019 because he's an assistant principal at a school. And so like the only time we can go is during the summer is like the only time he gets like real time off. But obviously we know what was happening last summer. It was complete chaos, especially for our business. So we didn't go. So we haven't been on like an extended vacation in almost two years. I was like, you know what? I'm booking it. I have no idea what this summer is going to be like, but we're going to Athens. We're going to Mykonos. We're going to Dubai. We're going to the Seychelles. We're going to be out there in the world. So I am like the opposite. I'm like, I don't need four hours. I need like 40 days. (laughs) I love to envision a world where this is what a CEO looks like, Brian. I think for me, growing up in my career, and you know, I never thought that I was going to be in business. Like I was a creative and I was a photographer and I was a blogger and I was a writer. And here I am in this unique position now as a founder of a growing business. I always remember looking at that role and at the job and being like, I could never do it. And I think it's really nice to imagine a world where a CEO is someone who is thoughtful and welcoming and warm and a teacher in service of others who also takes vacation. Are you describing me or you? Because it could be either of us. I love that. (laughs) It could be either of us. Essentially, I'm saying we are perfect CEOs, you know? (laughs) No, but we really are the next generation of CEOs. And I think it's actually for a badass woman who, to your point, is thoughtful, is a teacher, is empathetic, but knows what she's doing and like creates value for her clients. And for like me as a black gay man who is similar, yeah. Like we are the next generation of CEOs. And like, that's, that's the way that it should be. Your Beyonce lip syncs <laughs> give, give value to me. So Brian. Yes, I do love a good lip sync. Uh, it's truly one of my most favorite things to watch. And I think also just, I'm so proud of you. And I'm so grateful for all that you have taught me and for this conversation today. I cannot wait to watch what you do. And I just really, really do feel grateful to even be considered to your point as part of this next generation with people like you. It, it makes me feel really good about the future. And likewise, Baron, thank you so much for having me. Thank it's you. been so good to catch up. It's like old times. It's like 2015. I was like, wait, now that the podcast is over, can I ask you 18 finance questions? And do you, <laughs> you want to be on my board of advisors? <laughs>